This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. So good morning. Welcome. It's uh, so nice to see uh, so many uh, friendly faces. Um, and I also want to ask if there's anybody that's uh, that's new to our Sangha, uh, if you feel brave enough to raise your hand. Yeah, hi, Drew. Yeah, and welcome, Debbie, um, my old friend from Chapel Hill. I'm so glad to see you here. So in thinking about... Um, you know, what I might like to talk about today, you know, it occurred to me that we're about to go on winter interim. So we're about to take a break a little bit from practice. And this is part of practice. Um, I think Choro mentioned this in a Slack thread this week, that taking time to rest and, I don't know, come back to ourselves in some way is part of practice for sure. But it also occurs at this time of year, um, so I think it's Monday, so it's the 21st of December is the winter solstice. So the, the shortest day of the year, you're in the Northern Hemisphere. And it made me think about, you know, um, you know my two main you know, practices are currently are, are Zen and Chinese medicine. So I'm, I'm studying um, traditional Chinese medicine in preparation to become a um, acupuncturist and herbal um, doctor. And Chinese medicine, you know, largely uh, sprung out of uh, ancient Taoist um, teachings and practices. And even when I first encountered Zen, the, you know, ancient um, Chinese ancestors of Zen. So when Buddhism emigrated from India to China, uh, there was this um, kind of fusion that happened, partly because the Chinese were um, not so welcoming to foreign ideas. And so um, Buddhism, in a way, kind of slipped into China uh, by using the language of Taoism to kind of cloak it in some way. But I think this you know, in that process, there was this um, kind of magical fusion of Taoist and Buddhist understandings that um, really lie at the heart of, of Zen, Zen practice. So one of the things I appreciate about um, Taoism, and, and certainly there's many threads of this in Zen, um, is a kind of appreciation and a studying of the, the natural world. And, you know, that study includes us, you know, as a part of the natural world, as beings of this particular natural world. And I think, you know, Taoist and early Chinese medicine um, philosophers and teachers kind of looked to the natural world for clues about us. You know, how do we understand ourselves? Well, maybe the natural world has something to teach us about what it is to be a human being. And one thing I appreciate about Chinese philosophy is that there's such a kind of precision in some ways that doesn't always ring true to me. I think Zen has this kind of wide open field of accepting and kind of living in reality without um, 
trying to define it or pin it down in such a kind of exacting way. When I first started studying Qigong um, with a teacher, Li Ping, uh, from, from the San Francisco Zen Center, I was introduced to a book on Qigong practices, and it included a, a chapter on breath practices. And somehow these Qigong masters had defined like, I don't know, 25 or 50 types of breathing. And so, so I kind of love that, the, the sort of intricacy or the precision of that. And yet, you know, my experience of the breath, you know, that precision sometimes feels false. It feels like, um, you know, trying to create distinctions in something that's kind of indefinable. So anyway, within the precision of, of you know, Chinese and Taoist philosophy, in Chinese medicine in particular, the very basic understanding of the world and ourselves is, is a, a yin and yang theory. So um, I think some of, you know, probably most of us are familiar or have been introduced to the terms yin and yang. Um, perhaps we know the little circle um, that looks like two fish kind of intermingled swim, swimming together as a visual representation of yin and yang. Um, and I bring this up only because um, at the solstice, you know, at this very point of the year, uh, this is considered the, the height of yin, the, the most yin day of the year in a way. Um, and yet it's important to remember that yin and yang are, are kind of always uh, flowing into each other and are interdependent. Um, they cause each other. There's this relationship. So it's not a, it's not a dichotomy of black and white, you know, yin and yang. Um, it's always relative. I think this is you know, an important lesson we learn in Chinese medicine in particular. So, um, you know, the, the very basic idea of, of yin is uh, material, whereas yang is um, energetic or immaterial. You know, a symbol for yin is the moon. You know, a symbol for yang is the sun. And the seasons, the shifting of the seasons or even the shifting of a single day is this process of going from yang to yin back to yang. So they're always in relationship with each other. And then in terms of the human body, you know, how we relate that, you know, yang is activity. Um, yin is the substance of our body. Yin is sort of directionally the internal. Yang is this sort of outward seeking energy. Um, so yang is upward, you know, our head is the kind of top of our head is the most yang part of our body, the bottom of our feet, the most yin. And in this way, we can see how it's relative, how, you know, I could say my chin is yin in relation to my nose, but my chin is yang in relation to my belly button. You know? So there's always, yeah, this kind of I, I love that that aspect of this theory because it's it's saying it's again expressing the indefinable. You know, it's it's saying you can't define anything as exclusively 
yin or this is yin and this is yang. It's always kind of some relationship. But in that relationship, um, we've entered the, the most yin part of the year. So today into Monday, it's continuing to just slightly be a little bit more, more yin. But then from Monday on, the yang is kind of in, in ascendancy and the yin is declining in, in relative to each other. So, you know, in, in whatever way this is helpful to you, I, I, I find it helpful to, to kind of study the natural environment and my own body and its cyclical nature. And, you know, we're affected, we're part of this world. We're affected by these changes. You know, one of the changes is light, you know, the days are shorter. You know, uh, I think many people um, are affected by something called seasonal affective disorder. So our, 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 our very being and the energy of our being is affected by how much light we receive or don't. And I think, you know, with technology and the modern human world, you know, there's lots of benefits and ways that our lives become you know, easier, or there's some comfort to our lives through modern technology. But one of the great sadnesses of our kind of shifting into a kind of technological world is that we are slowly, um, I don't know, separated from some deep understanding uh, that, you know, um, humans for thousands of years have kind of known and been in tune with. So when I was maybe 19 or 20, I did a, a three-week outward bound trip and we, we were living on a, a sailboat in, in the Florida Keys. And um, this sailboat was a, basically a glorified rowboat. So there was like six sets of oars, two masts, but there was no cabin, there was no indoors to it. So. All day long, we were outside in the, um, and especially on the ocean, where there's nothing blocking the horizon. There's this feeling of living in the sky. You know, you're so aware of what time of day it is by where the sun is. And I was, you know, fascinated and touched by this kind of growing awareness as the three weeks went by of how. I knew what time, you know, I knew kind of when the moon was going to rise or uh, we got to know, you know, certain constellations and watch them kind of shift across the sky as the night went on. To be outside and kind of aware of, you know, sunrises and sunsets and the, the kind of infinite variations and in colors um, of the sky. I think in that awareness of uh, how easy it is actually, how, how kind of innate it is for us to attune to these cycles, uh, there was a kind of sadness that arose that most of my life I'm kind of oblivious to, um, to these kinds of things. And I think, you know, one of the things I like about Zen practice is there's, there's kind of a, there's sort of built in certain reminders 
So we do the, the Bodhisattva full moon ceremony every month. And at Tassahara, it's actually twice a month. We would do the kind of new moon and full moon. So even in just sort of our daily life and, and, and kind of following the schedule, we're kind of reminded of some cycle that's kind of greater than us. And uh, Dogen in um, one of my, my kind of favorite um, Dogen teaching kind of um, compendiums is this extensive record of the Ehe Koroku. And there's just very short talks, Dharma Hall discourses. Um, and my understanding of it is that they would, um, the monks would mm, get up from Zazen and everybody would file up to the Dharma Hall. And I think they would remain standing. Um, and the teacher would come in at the front of the room, give this short speech, you know, maybe a few minutes, and then they'd all kind of file back to the meditation hall. So it was just a kind of moment of inspiration, maybe, or encouragement. And uh, Taigen Leighton and Shohaku Okamura painstakingly um, translated this huge volume of teachings of these short um, talks <clears throat> with, you know, wonderful footnotes. But one thing I was always touched by was, you know, each Dharma Hall discourse has a number, but a lot of them have an association like Dharma Hall discourse on the day of Buddha's enlightenment that year. Um, and some of them are very seasonal. There's like um, Dharma Hall discourses on the day of the opening of the furnace. So apparently there was a certain day when it, you know, of a time of year where it got cold and they started to, to kind of um, keep a stove going all day to, to heat the, the, the building for the monks. But there's also uh, a number of Dharma Hall discourses on the day of the winter solstice. Winter solstice. So I wanted to share a bit of, of one of those with, with you. So there's a lot of allusions and um, references to other teachings. So this, this, these teachings can be pretty dense. Um, I don't expect that we'll all understand everything that's being said here, but maybe just allow the words in with a kind of sense of curiosity. So this one's called Polishing a Jewel Amid Snowfall. This is the Winter Solstice Dharma Hall Discourse uh, from 1245, the year 1245. When the ancient Buddha Hongzhi was residing at Mount Tiantong, during a winter solstice, Dharma Hall discourse, he said, yin reaches its fullness and yang arises. Strength is exhausted and our state changes. A, dr a green dragon runs fleetly when his bones are exposed. A black panther is transformed when he is clothed in mist. Take the skulls of the Buddhas of the three times and thread them onto a single rosary. Do not speak of bright or dark heads, as truly they are sun face, moon face. Even if your measuring cup is full and the balance scale is level, in transactions I sell at a high price and buy when cheap. Zen worthies, do you understand? In a, 
In a bowl, the bright pearl rolls on its own without prodding. So those were the words of Hong Zhe. Here is a story, Hong Zhe continued. Shui Feng asked a monk, where are you going? The monk said, I'm going to do community work. Shui Feng said, go. So later, Yunmen said, Shui Feng understands people according to their words. Hong Zhe said later, don't move. If you move, I'll give you 30 blows. Why is this so? For a luminous jewel without flaw, if you carve a pattern, its virtue is lost. So I love this um, integration of kind of our day-to-day -day Zen practice with these shifting cycles of the natural world and, and staying attuned to them. So in Chinese medicine, we learned that yin and yang theory is the very basis, but then there's all these theories that spread from that. Uh, one of them is called the, the five element theory. So um, that there's five elements that comprise everything in the world. Um, they are wood, water, uh, metal, earth, and fire. And each of these elements corresponds to all of these cycles. So um, each element has its season. Wood is the season of spring, um, sort of new growth of, of the tree. But winter is the season of water and its color is black, which is interesting. But maybe we understand that um, this being the darkest time of the year. So there's all these um, correspondences that these five elements can be kind of related to all of these cycles in the natural world, in our body. So each element has a corresponding organ and actually has a corresponding yin organ and yang organ. And the difference being uh, yin organs are kind of more dense, more material and tend to be storage vehicles. So um, the liver is a yin organ because it stores blood. Whereas like the large intestine or the small intestine are yang organs because they're, they're sort of a hollow and encouraging movement. But these correspondences can kind of reach very broadly and include, um, so there's a corresponding emotion to each element and season. And the corresponding uh, emotion of winter is fear, which is interesting. So at the darkest time of the year, at the most internal time of the year, at the stillest time of the year. So again, yang is movement, uh, but yin is, um, stillness or steadiness. And there's, you know, there's ways that we crave that stillness or we, I think there's a kind of comfort in winter time of, you know, going indoors and being warm um, of the stillness of, you know, a, a, an environment covered with snow. 
So I don't know about you, but I was enjoying the steady rainfall this morning. Um, we really needed it. It's been a while. Um, and so there's a kind of um, uh, a relief when this sort of the, the weather changes and um, something new happens. But in the rain, I was thinking this morning that um, even just the street here and the neighborhood seemed very quiet. And I remember growing up in, in New England when it snowed, there was this kind of um, loud silence in a way, this kind of profound silence of um, new fallen snow, just sort of blanketing, um, covering the world in stillness and quiet. So I don't know, maybe many of you probably didn't hear this talk, but the last talk I gave was um, during the second day of the um, two-day retreat that we did in November. And in that talk, I, I shared a, an experience that I had when I was um, 19 or 20 as well of you know a pretty profound kind of failing health and... Um, I had a, a deep vein thrombosis in my leg. Part of the clot broke off and went to my lung. So I had a pulmonary embolism. I was in a lot of pain for a number of days in a row. And that uh, kind of awoke some innate, um, you know, just trying to bear that pain. I started to breathe into uh, certain areas of the body, just trying to relax it, trying to just take the edge away from the pain. Um, and this was before I, you know, came to a Zen center or thought about meditating. Um, but looking back, it you know, perhaps was some um, step in becoming a, a Zen practitioner. Um, that uh, bodhicitta sometimes is described as the, the kind of moment of awareness that we come to that practice is possible, that um, awakening is possible in this um, body and mind. So for me, I think that was, um, you know, I, I don't claim to know the causes and conditions of my own life, even let alone uh, the rest of the world. But it's something that I kind of, you know, wonder how is that related to the rest of my life? Um, but I wanted to um, share a similar but very different experience that I had 20 years later. Um, and I think some of you know this. Um, about five years ago, I had a heart attack. Um, <clears throat> actually, on the night of my 40th birthday. Um, talk about a midlife crisis. Um, and I think it was related to this blood clotting condition that I've had for a long time. Um, but whereas when I was a 19 or 20 year old, the experience of my own failing body and the, the very vivid experience of impermanence, you know, when we're sick, we realize that we are fragile, fleeting uh, entities in a visceral way that <clears throat> thankfully we forget. Um, you know, our mind has this incredible capacity to 
you know, I recall being in the hospital, but I don't remember the feeling of total insecurity of my own kind of being. So this experience when I was younger um, awoke something, you know, um, and kind of brought a, a sense of confidence about um, being or not being, you know, a kind of deep okayness with the world. But 20 years later, um, and, I, and I actually kind of started to self-identify with that, like, oh, this is what Tim does in a, in a you know, difficult moment. You know, it wakes some great, you know, I, I kind of meet it with some great capacity or something, you know, there was a kind of um, grasping that experience as me. Um, but my experience 20 years later, um, when I got out of the hospital from having a heart attack, I spent, um, you know, two or three months um, crawling into bed <laughs> as often as I could. I tried to maintain the rest of my life. I was in school. I had papers to do and tests to take. But whenever I wasn't doing something, I would just get into bed. And I was sort of racked with this um, intense fear and sense of insecurity about my life. Uh, and about who I was, uh, or if I would be, you know. Um, and in that time, uh, I was very fortunate. One of you know my my root teacher, Josho uh, Pat Phelan, just happened to come to San Francisco, um, and she said, "Do you want to go out to lunch?" And I was trying to express to her how much I was racked with fear and. Um, and how destabilizing that was to the rest of my life. And she said something that, you know, I don't know if it, it doesn't maybe sound so profound, but it had a profound impact on me. And she just said, you know, the longer we're here, the longer we're a part of this world in this body, the more attached we get to it. You know, it's kind of what we're used to. <laughs> um, and I think that had some comfort to me because I had this crisis of identity in a way too, like, oh, I thought I was this person that um, thrived in difficulty. And now here I am, you know, really shying away and kind of crawling into, into myself. And I felt like it was a personal failing or a failing of my practice or something. And she gave a simple answer that's just like, yeah, of course, you know. Um, this too is an experience of our life. So there have been certain moments of extreme feeling of fear in my life, but I think fear is, is been a, you know, a companion in my, my practice life um, in ways that, you know, when I don't feel it so acutely, I can be grateful for, you know, it's this sort of motivating factor in my, in my, my practice. And I remember early on, you know, chanting, um, I think especially in the first few years of practice that when we would chant certain chants in, um, in the Zendo, uh, certain phrases or words, you know, you just sort of holding the book, trying to make sound, trying to keep up with people, trying to attune to the room. And then certain words or phrases would just sort of like, oof, you know, really deeply grab you or um, some meaning would open up. 
Um, and I remember in the Heart Sutra, um, I think somebody mentioned this recently, actually, um, this particular phrase. Um, but the Heart Sutra, you know, we're, has this long list of no, 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 you know, no body, no mind, um, no first noble truth, no second noble truth, you know, nothing that we understand or relate to can be relied upon in some way. Um, so it's a tough teaching in a way. It's this um, taking away our, uh, what we think are our supports, you know, oh, I understand my life or, or yes, I believe in the first noble truth. That's true. Uh, no, you know, we're going to take that away. And then where are you? <laughs> But this list of no's ends with the phrases. Um, so it says, uh, no suffering, no cause, no cessation, no path. So no, no first noble truth, no second noble truth, no third noble truth. With nothing to attain, a bodhisattva relies on prajna paramita. This ever-flowing wisdom that can't be pinned down. And thus the mind is without hindrance. Without hindrance, there is no fear. Far beyond all inverted views, one realizes nirvana. All Buddhas of the past, present, and future rely on prajna paramita and thereby attain unsurpassed, complete, perfect enlightenment. So we're going to take away all the things you rely upon, all your understandings of yourself and the world, but we're going to give you something to rely on, something that's indefinable, that we can't pin down. So rely on that. <laughs> There's a koan in itself. But the phrase, um, there is no fear, you know, without hindrance. If you can flow with prajna, if you can stop relying on things, Somehow fear is taken away. Those words felt like a great relief um, a number of times, just chanting them. Um, so, you know, I'm talking about fear, but I, you know, what I mean is, um, again, something indefinable, but it's, it's happening here. It's, you know, a shifting energy. Uh, you know, maybe a cold sweat, an increased heart rate, uh, maybe racing thoughts. I think we often talk about emotions as if it's sort of like, again, something we can rely on. Oh, yeah, we all understand what fear is or sadness. But what are they actually? Do you understand them in your own body? What is your experience of them? So how do we, you know, practice with emotions, with these energies? I think it's great practice because, you know, emotion as energy, as movement and um, changes in our felt sense and perception of ourself and the world, you know, they can only really happen in this moment. So, um, 
you know, practice is always about finding ways to come back to just this, just this experience, whatever it is. Um, so, you know, how do we practice with fear? You know, I think the first thing we do is hopefully acknowledge it. Oh, yes, my heart is racing. Oh, yes, my hands are starting to sweat. Wow, the stream of thoughts is coming very quickly. You know, it's kind of hard to, to know what I'm thinking even. And it's not just fear and it's not just emotion. You know, I think the first step in practice is always to, to come back to what, what, what's happening? What is this? And not that there's an answer. It's just the what, what's happening is a question to bring us back to that experience and just being that experience. So of course, fear in particular is a powerful emotion that drives us to run away, to distract, to pull the covers up over our head and wait for another day. And I do think that you know one of the practices of practicing with fear is um, patience. Sometimes that's the practice. <clears throat> An acknowledgement, yes, this is happening and I'm caught in it. I'm caught by it. So I'll just sit here and wait and trust that things change, that energies and emotions shift. So, you know, in practicing with fear in particular, I, I wanted to just recommend a few resources. Um, one is a book um, from Chogyam Trumpa. Uh, that was actually published not too long ago. So this is way after his death, but this um, collection of talks uh, is called Smile at Fear. You know, I think that's a wonderful title. That, that in itself is a practice. What would that look like? How would I smile at fear? Um, there's a nice book that came out, I don't know, five years ago, maybe more in the face of fear, and it's a compendium of different Buddhist teachers talking about. Um, yeah, the rain has just picked up here, um, starting to pour again. Uh, and then in particular, uh, Pema Chodron's The Places That Scare You. So um, in The Places That Scare You, Pema has a, a, a chapter called Learning to Stay. She starts, as a species, we should never underestimate our low tolerance for discomfort. <laughs> to be encouraged to stay with our vulnerability is news that we can use. <clears throat> Sitting meditation is our support for learning how to do this. Yeah, so... Um, you know, one of the great things about Zazen and, and posture is that it gives us this kind of upright, um, kind of maybe more open physical experience through which to, to hold and be with difficult things. So sitting meditation is our support for learning how to do this. Sitting meditation, also, not, also known as mindful awareness practice, 
is the foundation of bodhicitta training. It is the natural seat, the home ground of the warrior bodhisattva. So part of what, um, you know, Pema Chodron recommends in this practice of learning to stay is this acceptance of our experience. So giving up this project of fixing ourselves that we're so often caught in. Um, and that's actually a kind of violence towards ourselves. If I'm having the experience of anger, I mean, of fear, it doesn't help me to be angry at myself for being afraid. Um, and yet that happens, you know, that's part of our experience too. But there's many specific practices, you know, Pema Chodron and Shogun Trumpa both suggest loving kindness practice as a way to soften into um, the experience that we're having. So rather than getting angry that I'm afraid, you know, can I feel some compassion for myself that's having a difficult, difficult experience? Like, oh yeah, that is, that is painful. Yeah, that is scary. And one of the, you know, in the six paramitas, the first paramita of Dana paramita or generosity, many of the texts that talk about um, generosity say that um, list, you know, some of the, the main ways that we can give. Um, and certainly material resources is one, but almost all of them talk about the gift of non-fear, that what a bodhisattva can offer the world and, and themselves mm -hmm. is some capacity to deal with and understand fear. So non-fear to me doesn't mean um, that we've banished uh, or we don't experience being afraid. It's just that we learn to uh, flow with it, like prajna, that, um, that it's not a hard stop. You know, I'm afraid and then I just shut down. So, you know, I, I think a lot of people understand that courage means not the absence of fear, but a kind of willingness to be there when we're afraid, to be there for ourselves, to be there for others. And then, you know, loving kindness practice comes in for when we're not able to do that. You know, when I do run away, okay, I need to find some forgiveness or um, softness with myself. So I do, you know, if fear is a particular, um, you know, practice or entity in your own life, you know, I do recommend reaching out to practice leaders and teachers and exploring it, exploring it and, and wondering what, you know, what ways we can practice with it. You know, I'm, I'm very grateful to my teachers for encouraging me to stay, to stay in the middle of difficult experiences and for teaching me how to um, be gentle and forgiving uh, when that doesn't, for whatever reason, that's not possible. 
So um, just for a moment, returning to this um, kind of seasonal acknowledgement, uh, I wanted to share a poem from Ajahn Chah that, yeah. So Ajahn Chah was a um, Thai forest monk um, and the Thai forest tradition is uh, largely based on sitting out, outdoors, you know, being outside in the elements, in the natural world. So Ajahn Chah says, uh, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. So this allowing, this acceptance of our reality. Uh, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So maybe some of you have seen that um, this, this week, there's a kind of um, very unusual uh, astrological, not astrological, um, you know, very rare um, occurrence in the universe for us in this perspective from Earth uh, that Jupiter and Saturn are about to sort of come in their uh, orbits to a point in the sky from the vantage point of Earth. Um, and this close kind of contact of these two planets will create a kind of single point of light in the sky that will be pretty bright. Um, and this doesn't happen but maybe every 800 years. Um, and some say that this is the, the star of Bethlehem or the Christmas star that the wise men followed. This bright light in the sky, especially at a dark, dark time of year. So I think actually starting on the solstice Monday and for the whole following week, if we look to the Southwest, just after sunset in the early evening, you know, maybe check it out, see if you can find it. You know, maybe that can be an inspiration to, um, to just be a kind of aware of our natural surroundings and allow that to, to kind of touch us and move us. Um, so I think I'll end with just uh, repeating this Ajahn Shah poem. He says, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of Buddha. So I wish you um, great happiness at this um, still and dark time of the year.
So I think uh, in just a few minutes, we'll break up into um, small groups if people want to stay and chat. But I, I wondered if there are any um, uh, maybe questions or comments or thoughts that folks want to share. Yeah, Bruce. Tim, I, I especially appreciated your talking about living on that sailboat um, because I think that I, I've noticed something similar. I, I had the, uh, the good fortune of living on a farm for a couple of years mm. in my early 30s. And I think there's, um, I, I think this desire to shield ourselves from the elements is, it, it comes from an extremely understandable, relatable impulse. Like, I don't want to be outside right now. I really don't. And I'm very glad that the furnace is working. Like, these are not things that on the surface of them, I would look upon as great spiritual benefits to go outside without an umbrella and be freezing and wet. But there is a price to be paid. And when I lived on that farm, it wasn't simply that I had to go out, whatever the weather was, but that because of having to go out, because the animals needed to be fed twice a day and it didn't matter what the temperature was or, or how soggy the ground was or what was falling from the sky, it had to be done. And what I noticed was that never before or since, I think, have I felt more connected to the, to the specific place where I lived. You know, because it's one thing to read about interconnectedness and it's one thing to think about it and discuss it. But when you're interconnected because it's 20 degrees outside and these sheep need your attention and then you go back to the sheltered place and that's good. But uh, it's just like it, it was it was it taught me something that I could never have learned any other way. I think. And so I'm glad that you had the experience of, of just you know, being having the horizon surround you 360 degrees like that. And, yeah. and, and early morning sitting, even I've noticed that, again, this, this idea of shielding, like we usually want to shield ourselves from waking up early, right? Mm -hmm. And from not getting sleep. But there's, there's something about just the physical experience of seeing seeing it go from night to day that, that that's connecting and grounding in, in a way that I just, I can't verbalize and I don't know that anyone can write. So I appreciate the reminder of that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Bruce. Um, as well, well said, I, and in fact, I appreciate you pointing out, you know, the discomfort involved in having these deep, deep connections in a way like, you know, that, that time on the boat for three weeks, you know, there were moments of ecstasy of kind of seeing the whole sky and being feeling a part of it. But there was lots of times where it, you know, it rained or it was really windy and the boat was moving and people were sick. And, um, you know, we were expected to get up at six and six in the morning. It was very much like Zen practice and get off the boat and, get into the water is kind of like our daily shower basically and it was often cold it was cold at that time of day and the water was cold you know um so uh, there's almost it's it's interesting to consider there's almost some relationship between like a willingness to give up our comfort 
you know? Yeah, yeah, our comfort is understandable. It is understandable that we pursue comfort. Um, and there is something that we lose in just always seeking comfort. So I think that a willingness to be uncomfortable to some degree is somehow related with that kind of deeper, deeper grounding. That's interesting. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Bunkai. Thank you for your talk. Mm -hmm. um, I'm always impressed with how kind of soft and gentle you are. Um, and I was curious though, um, um, given your heart attack and all, um, are you still smoking as an ex-smoker? <laughs> um, uh, busted. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> It'll help your practice, I'm sure. Yes, yes, thank you. Thank you for calling me out on that. <clears throat> Um, I did actually, as a, as a response to that heart attack, you know, face that demon in my life and quit for a couple years. Um, and then, you know, quite easily fell back into the habit. But, um, you know, thank you for the reminder to uh, take care of, of this, this very one. I don't mean to be self-righteous. I had um, double bypass and a, and a valve repair before I managed to stop smoking. So. <laughs> It was, it was interesting, you know, in that fear and in that sort of feeling rocked by the experience, all the doctors were saying, you have to quit smoking. And it was like the one time I most wanted to smoke in a way, like that was like, that was when you need that sort of self-soothing or the comfort in a way. Um, and so I, I felt trapped in that kind of like, this is what you're supposed to do. And this is kind of... Um, the one of the few places that you still find comfort in your life, you know, so, um, but those are the challenges of our life and our practice. Um, thank you for sharing that. And I'm, I'm glad that you've, um, you know, survived that difficulty and uh, that you are taking care of yourself in that way. But I don't think I've written a decent word since I stopped smoking. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, these these habits that are so deeply rooted in our life and we take them away and there's just this um this endless sense that something's missing, you know. Um which is part of the courage of quitting, I think. Um there's a there's a comic that I like um and I'm forgetting her name now. Um, but she has a, a kind of routine where she says, like when she quit smoking, like all her friends said, um, oh, you quit smoking, like you must feel great now. And her response was like, no, no, I don't feel great. Like, um, and I, I understood what she meant. Like, I miss that still, you know, even though I've taken this step to take care of myself, whatever comfort I got from that, I'm still kind of missing in some way. Um, and that's the courage to, to change our habits in our life. Uh, I wanted to thank well, you for your talk. Yeah, hey, Kathy. Uh, a reminder about the natural world because it, it's, it's always, I think it's so important to stay connected and it's hard when you live in a city, uh, but it is possible. Um, I, I read this morning something about the uh, conjunction of the planets of suggesting dusk 
And I don't know if that means before sunset. But I think it's very hard. I think it sets so fast that if, mm. if, if it's really hard. I couldn't see it the other night, but then I, one night I did see it and they were at this point still very close to, also close together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And um, yeah. And I, and I wonder, you know, they say it's supposed to be visible for about a week. So I wonder if some time in that week might be better than others. I don't know. You know, and in fact, that's an acknowledgement of my own disconnection to the sky because, I, you know, um, I remember in living in that on that boat that I became aware of when the moon was going to rise after sunset. You know, the moon rises, I think it's 50 minutes later every day, which is the slight difference between the, the lunar cycle and the solar cycle. So uh, I wish I could kind of compute or calculate um, whether that would help, you know, uh, as, as the week goes along. If it's rising later, I think it might get more visible or it'll be more dark um, if you're saying it's still light when it's first going to start happening. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I think even in a city we can find, you know, just moments to connect to the natural world. Um, I'm really grateful here at uh, the Zen Center that um, Shoal Creek is just a couple blocks away, you know, and quite often um, I just walk down there to walk along the creek um, just because it's shielded from traffic and buildings and it's just, um, you know, moving water. In fact, I'm excited to see after this rain, um, sometimes it starts flowing really kind of rapidly. So even in a city, you know, to consciously make some effort to find that connection. Well, this is, um, I think, you know, the end of our kind of formal schedule for the next couple of weeks. Um, so um, I, I know Pat isn't here today. She's in a Sashin um, through Zoom, I think, uh, with the Ith Ithaca Sangha. Um, but Pat has offered to um, uh, continue to offer or support Zazen in the mornings on Zoom. So you can still use the same Zoom links to, to sit next week and the following couple days, I guess, before the first. Um, uh, but otherwise, the formal schedule is kind of being set down for um, some 10 days or so. So, you know, please, um, you know, maybe sleep in. <laughs> nourish yourself in body and spirit. So I think if, uh, if folks want to stick around, we'll have um, break up into small, or actually, are there any announcements that we need to share at this point? Yeah, yeah Michael. I'll just uh, tag on to what Bruce said earlier, which is that um, during interim, there will be a, a Christmas Eve sit and a New Year's Eve sit. And I just wanted to say that the, the Christmas Eve sit is being hosted by Meditation and Recovery group that meets, uh, has been meeting at AZC for, for a very long time. And they're gonna be following their usual format. They are in, inviting everyone who wants to come to come and it will start at 10 o'clock in the evening. So that will be a 10 to 11 sit and discussion and meta chanting. 
And then on New Year's Eve, that will start at seven o'clock and it will start with a full moon ceremony. So I think the new moon has just passed. So that's why like now is a really good time to go look at mm. these planets coming together is because the moon is on the other side of the earth. Mm. Um, so it's, it's the darkest uh, sky, but we're gradually getting lighter and lighter. Um, and uh, so we'll be starting the New Year's Eve sit with a full moon ceremony and then there'll be um, time for our traditional cleaning, which I have to say is um, a wonderful tradition to clean your space before the new year comes so that you can, you know, rise up on New Year's Day and be like, ah, oh, I, you know, my, you know, my space is nice and, and uh, clean for me to start the, start the new year. Um, and then we'll do our traditional sitting with uh, uh, ringing 108 bells to welcome the new year and followed by the, uh, the, the bonfire and um, just spending time with each other. So I just wanted to say those things. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Tim, for that really lovely talk. Yeah, thank you, my pleasure.